Uh, if you got a Bible tonight, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, picking up where we left off last week. And I'm actually going to just go ahead and start us off on this first uh, talking point this evening as we get into God's Word. Again, we'll pick up in verse number 28 if you want to find your place there with us. Um, we have been talking about, and we've seen plenty of times so far in Acts, that the gospel, um, though it started in Jerusalem, and though many of the Jews thought it would stay in Jerusalem, clearly the gospel was bigger and more powerful and was for more people than just those in Jerusalem, those in Judea, those in Galilee. Uh, and what we've seen so far in Acts, particularly the first eight chapters, we noticed that what started in Jer Jerusalem made its way uh, to the outer cities of Judea, up to Galilee, and eventually across the borders of Israel, both north and south. Uh, when the gospel first began breaking out beyond Israel, though, past the hills of Judea and Galilee, there was a temptation to put an asterisk on every story, on every outsider who came to faith. Because though some people beyond J Judea were getting saved, the Jews sort of thought those were anomalies. This wasn't going to be a, a, an outburst throughout the rest of the world. This was something that, yes, others might believe and others clearly would believe, but that really wasn't for them. When the Samaritans believed in Acts 8, well, of course, the Samaritans were close enough to Judea. They were kind of, you know, part of the Israelites' history. They were sort of, uh, you know, they, they were originally part of the, the, the nation of Israel. They kind of married into the Assyrians, and they kind of got made black sheep because of that and, and looked down on because of that. Uh, so, yes, the Samaritans uh, weren't Jewish, if you will, uh, but Jesus dealt with the Samaritans. So, yeah, they can get in, uh, but they always kind of exist to themselves. They, they stay to themselves. So, so no skin off our backs. It's not like we're going to start a church there or plant a church there. So yeah, we'll let a few Samaritans in, but really not going to worry too much about them in the future. Uh, and then when the Ethiopian believed, uh, well, at least he was seeking out the Lord. He was at the temple and our ancestors, of course, they trekked through the land, that the same road that he took all those years uh, ago. So you know, he's just one from a continent of unlikely to be believers. So yeah, I know an Ethiopian believe, but you know, that's just one guy, not like a lot of people are lining up from, from Africa to, to get in. And it's not like any of us are ever going to go down there. I mean, who's going to go to Ethiopia? Who's going to go down to Egypt? And we got out of Egypt. We don't want to go near that place. Um, the Gaza road, uh, colloquially uh, among the Jews was known as the road to the end of the earth. So that lets you know how, what they thought about going south. They did not like that territory. It was kind of a desert. Luke tells us it was a desert. Um, so nobody was about to go to Ethiopia or, or beyond to start a church. The Jews thought, you know what? Yeah, one guy got in, but, you know, God bless him. Hopefully he'll share the news with somebody, but we're not going down there to do it. The Jews had come from the wilderness. They weren't concerned with going back there. So from there, they assumed, and, and I really believe we kind of get this from the whole story in Acts, they assumed the gospel had stretched its legs um, all it was going to. Um, to them, Acts 1-8 had been fulfilled. Because if you remember, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And, and they took that as having been fulfilled. Because, again, they thought that road to Gaza, that road to Ethiopia, to them, that was called the end of the earth. So when this man got saved, they thought, okay, we've done all we're going to do. The church has expanded. Jesus is popular. People have gotten saved. The story is complete. To many in the first century church or in this first decade of the church, Acts 1 through 8 was a finished book. 
a complete story, a truncated version of the gospel that preceded it. Because as the gospels ended with Jesus dying, so did that little story end with Stephen dying. Of course, he wasn't equal to Jesus, but he died in a similar manner and a similar theme. Now, Luke, of course, crafts the story in this manner, having the disciples go into hiding for fear upon Stephen's death. But notice that Stephen's death ends with him saying similar words that Jesus did, praying that God would not hold accountable those that stoned him. God would not hold it on their, uh, hold it, it, it against them. So Luke ends that little section of Acts sort of teasing that this story isn't over, even though many of the church leaders thought that it was. Now we know it's not over because it, we're way past chapter eight at this point. We're into chapter 10, but this is gonna be a theme in Acts. A theme that we're gonna see over and over again in Acts is every time it seems the church hits its peak, or reaches its limit, there's another chapter, another mission, another miracle, another unexpected door opens, another unexpected group of people are saved. That happens every chapter you think, it can't get any bigger, it can't go any broader, it can't get any more remarkable than that. And again and again, something big happens just around the corner. You turn the page and wow, they've moved another mile, they've moved another country, they've moved another continent, they've crossed another imperial barrier, right? Every time you think they've hit their peak, they've reached their limit, something big happens again. In Acts 9, the gospel again stays within the Jewish culture, but the impact of the conversion story is unto all cultures and unto all nations. Because in Acts chapter 9, remember, Saul of Tarsus is saved. And as the church received a great commission in chapter 1, as this new section begins, Saul receives his own great commission. Saul is not just converted, he is commissioned as he is made the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, the church has no intentions of going to Gentiles at this point. Saul of Tarsus was trying to stop the church because he didn't want people to get in, beyond, didn't want people beyond Jerusalem to get in to begin with. So this guy, the most unlikely of candidates to be an apostle to begin with, let alone to the Gentiles. Now, Saul, of course, would be what the Jew, the 12 had been to Jerusalem and Judea. Saul would be that to the rest of the world. One who had ambition, had ambition and had zeal um, of the 12 or more, but, but it was important to the story. And more importantly, the church, that it would be unified on this new expansion. So the story shifts back to Peter. We're introduced to Paul. We're told who Paul's going to be. But then the story shifts back over to Peter because as this new age, this new era, this new Gentile mission is about to begin, it's important the whole church be united around this mission. So Peter the de facto leader of the church, the Jewish church as it was. Um, he'd been off the grid a little while. We know he was working on the gospel of Mark maybe. He was working there in Jerusalem with the church. But now he's back and he's back in a big way as this new wave of momentum comes on the scene from heaven. Um, Acts 9 tells us that Peter picked up right where he left off, performing miracles, doing signs and wonders, God revealing his power through Peter so that people might know him. Now, uh, now, Peter, um, as he comes on the scene, we can quickly find out uh, that the story shifts back to Peter for one purpose, to confront an obstacle that was present within every Jewish Christian. So this next phase of Peter's story, this, 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 as Peter comes back on the scene, we think it's just gonna be Peter doing miracles and doing, you know, preaching sermons, but it quickly make, becomes known that this story is really about confronting an obstacle 
uh, that was present in Peter's heart, but also within every Jewish Christian, every Jewish follower of Jesus, which most of the followers at this point were Jewish. So a big obstacle in a majority of the church. All of them from their earliest age had been taught, not from the Old Testament, mind you, but from their man-made religion um, drawn from the Old Testament. Um, the Jews had been taught they were a superior people. Not just that they were a chosen people, but they were a superior people, that they were a people who were favored by God over the rest. But that was never God's intent. And we've talked about this enough, but it's important that we understand this because they had something that was in the way of their expansion, uh, expansion of the church. The Jews were favored so that they might bless the rest of the world, not so that the, re not so that the rest of the world might be forgotten. And this is a big contentious issue at this point in the church's expansion because the church was not planning to expand anymore for this very reason. The Jews believed and, and the Christian Jews thought they were the full and final version of what their ancestors had been promised. The Jews were favored so that the rest of the world might be blessed, not so that the rest of the world might be forgotten. Now we know that when God called Abraham, he said that through him, the rest of the world would be blessed. God said, I will bless those who bless you. Through you, Abraham, the rest of the world will come to know me. We've read through the through prophet Isaiah where God tells him, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God told Israel in the Old Testament, my cho choosing you is not just to establish a nation that will reign over the others. It's to reveal to the rest of the nations my glory and my plan of salvation. Now we've covered this plenty before, but it's so important that we know this to both understand why Acts 10 even had to happen in the way that it did. And, and I mean, this is impossible for us to completely comprehend, but I wanna make it very clear, and, and this is why I'm making a big deal out of this. Peter and the church behind him had zero intentions and no convictions whatsoever to spread the gospel beyond Judea. At this point in the story in Acts 9, they had zero intentions. They had no convictions. There's a reason why God went and got an outsider, a, a, a man who was murdering Christians, but who was a planner, who was an organizer, who was a mobilizer, Saul. There's a reason why God went and got him because Peter and the church that he was leading had zero intentions and no convictions, not that the Bible wouldn't convict them, but they were ignoring it. They had no convictions whatsoever to spread the gospel beyond Judea. I want that to be very clear because now we understand why God confronted Peter like he did. You'd think they'd be conversing and planning around the challenges of breaking through the barriers of Gentile culture because they really had reached the limit there in Jerusalem. They had reached Judea. It was time to go beyond Israel, but they were completely against that idea. In reality, they were so confident, and this is the reason why, they were so confident of Jesus' attraction and power, the likelihood of breaking barriers was the very reason they did not want to go. So it wasn't that they thought, wow, we shouldn't even try because there's no way we're gonna break those barriers. The reason why, and this is kind of slimy, and, and it's kind of revealing of the hearts that they had, but we don't have that, or our hearts are not that different. So I hope this is, is a little bit revealing to us. They were so confident of Jesus' attraction and power, that's the reason they weren't planning to go to the Gentiles. You see what's going on here? 
Now, there were Jews scattered around the Roman Empire. They felt obliged to go to them, but they knew if they went to the Jews around the Roman Empire, it would be impossible to also not reach Gentiles. And they were so worried about Gentiles finding their way in, this is the exact reason why they were hesitant to even go to the Jews that were in synagogues around the Roman Empire. They were worried what would happen if the Gentiles heard the gospel, knowing how likely it would be that they would believe the gospel, they did not want to deal with the problem of having them come into the churches. Now, why would they be so hateful to the Gentiles, to people like me and you? Because the Gentiles were so different, too different. The Gentiles talked different and dressed different and ate different and looked different. The Gentiles had a pagan culture about them. The Jews were so convinced that the Gentiles would require so much work that they would never even be qualified to associate with them, let alone be in community with them. The church knew that if these pesky Gentiles ever heard of Jesus and his irresistible grace, they may think that they can get saved just as we can. And the church decided, we can't let this happen. You think, my goodness, would they be that nefarious? Now, they didn't think they were being nefarious. They thought they were being righteous. And we'll learn along this conversation that we kind of have these same nefarious ideas in our own hearts, don't we? We don't think we're nefarious. We think we're doing the right thing. Now, they did not think they were being sinful. They thought they were defending the truth. They thought they were doing the right thing. But don't you see the conflict within them? Peter knew, the disciples knew, if these pesky Gentiles hear of Jesus in his grace, they might have the wild idea that they can get saved just like we can. We can't give them that illusion. So let's just not go anywhere near them. Now we know this is true because later in Acts, they finally do go beyond Judea and they still only want to focus on the Jews and they get frustrated when the Gentiles start pouring in. And every time a Gentile shows up in the church, the, the Jerusalem church sends out some sort of mission team to make sure nothing crazy is going on because they don't trust the people. They micromanage every scenario where a Gentile comes in until the Gentiles eventually overwhelm the numbers of the Jews. But we'll get to that later. Even after that, there's a controversy around trying to force Gentiles to become Jewish through ceremony. It's just a mess that boils down to the idea that the church just did not think Gentiles had a place in the kingdom of God. You see, this is what we talked about last week, but they, they weren't surprised by the power of God's grace. They were frustrated by it. And I'm, 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 I'm kind of making sure this is, is, is heard tonight because I want you to understand how easy it is for the church to get in this mode of, well, we don't have to do that. I mean, yeah, God could make a difference there, but if, you know, it's just too messy, it's too complicated, it, it, it's just, it's going to require too much work. And, you know, we don't even know if we feel comfortable doing that. It's easy for the church to get entrenched in this place. Now, the church in Jerusalem, the church in Judea, they knew that God would save the Gentiles if they went, so they decided they just weren't going to go. Now, who does that remind you of? What story does that remind you of? 
There's an Old Testament prophet it should remind you of. Remember, God called a man named Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, why was Nineveh important in that time? Because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was the number one enemy of Israel. And God called Jonah to go preach the good news of believing in the Jewish God. And Jonah said, I don't want to go. I hate those people. Now, we think racist is a little bit of a strong word. We might use the word nationalist. Jonah was a very proud Jew, and he did not want anybody else getting close to his God. But he also knew that his God was so good, he might just let somebody get close. So Jonah's idea, Jonah's response was, I'm not going. And we know what happened. Jonah got swallowed by a whale because of the storm he got put in on the boat. And he said, hey, I'm jumping off. God swallowed him, not to punish him, but to get him back on the mission field. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches the good news. Believe in God. God will spare your city. And what does God do? He spares their city. Jonah chapter 3, when, the, when God saw that what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, when you hear the story of Jonah preached, you never hear the fourth chapter preached because it's just uncomfortable to preach. It's, it's messy. What do you do with this? Jonah, the great preacher who learned his lesson, we thought, is mad at God for saving people. I mean, what kind of piece of work is that? And what does Jonah say? Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why I said I'm not going to go to begin with. For I knew, I knew that you are a merciful God, a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, what in the world would, why would that come out of his mouth? God just saves thousands, hundreds of thousands of people because he's good and gracious. He just saved Jonah's own life from drowning. I mean, Jonah, I mean, are you being a little bit extreme here? Do you really mean that? It would be better for you to die than to live? Now, oh, by the way, where did Jonah go the first time he ran from God? Joppa? Where was Peter at? Isn't it funny how God rhymes his story sometimes to make it even more obvious what he's trying to get across to us? Peter went down to Joppa. He went on a vacation. But, of course, he would actually get put, on, put to work on the mission field. This is exactly what we're dealing with here in Acts 10. It wasn't a matter of can Gentiles be saved. It was an issue of should Gentiles be saved. And the church pretty much came down on the side of no, they should not be saved. Now, I got to say, if they could make such a heinous error... Don't you think it's in us to follow in their stead in a similar, or maybe not so similar, but in some way, shape, or form? I think we better be aware of that likelihood. How did they arrive there? Well, they were pretty much born and bred there. Religion had twisted and misinterpreted God's word for years. 
I want to show you some examples of how this happened. When we already talked about this, how God, how they thought God's favor on Israel was at the expense of other nations, not for the salvation of other nations. If this sounds similar to our conversations back in Jeremiah, it's because Jeremiah is filled with scriptures that inspire these same conversations. Because it looks forward to a future where God was going to make a new covenant, not just with Israel, but with the whole world. Now, I want to show you some verses from Jeremiah. And I've highlighted some words that we're going to see repeated in Acts. And I want to show you how the Jews thought they would be fulfilled and how they actually were fulfilled. So Jeremiah 24 and chapter 50, I want to show you these two passages. God says in Jeremiah 24, I will give them, talking about his people, a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God. They shall return to me with their whole heart. So they shall turn back or return to me with a whole heart, which a, with a clean heart. So keep those in mind. Chapter 50, he says this, I will restore Israel to his pasture in those days or in that time, and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel and there shall be none. So the themes here, God's gonna return Israel to where they were before or bring his people back to a place that they once were, a better place even. He's gonna restore Israel in those days, that, that, that phrase, in a certain time, and he's gonna wash their sin away and clean their hearts. Now, when the Jews understood this, they thought, okay, God's going to send a Messiah and Messiah's going to build a kingdom and it's going to be at the expense of the rest of the world and going to be for us and us alone. So this is after the resurrection. Remember what the disciples asked Jesus in Acts 1. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They are directly referring to those Old Testament prophecies that we just looked at that are all over the Old Testament if you look the rest of the stories up. So notice here, they are saying, is this the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought, is this when you're going to physically give Israel an empire over all the rest of the world? Is this going to be us at the expense of them? And what does God say to them? No, 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 you don't, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. And then he gives them the great commission. But the disciples still thought this was a exclusive national thing for Israel and Israel only. They thought it was about a nation. But what does Peter himself preach at Pentecost in Acts 3? Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So here's Peter with the inspiration of God using those words from Jeremiah. Repent, be restored, turn back, your sins will be forgiven. This is the time you've been waiting for. They thought it was a, was a nation, but what was God actually establishing? His church. And what happens at Pentecost? People from all over the world believe. A preview of what Acts would tell in its full story. Now this should warn us all who have a similar tendency to take bits and pieces of God's promises and envision and entrench ourselves in a false fulfillment. Israel did this and it created cold hearts for the Gentiles. This is why the Jews thought they weren't supposed to go to the Gentiles. It's why Peter, when God said go, he said no. They saw Gentiles as obstacles to and objects of their own advancement. 
I think if we can take any practical application from this is, is this. Any interpretation of God's word that vilifies a group of people, no matter what, is a wrong interpretation. I think that's pretty safe to say, isn't it? Any interpretation, any biblical interpretation that provides a bypass around loving and serving anyone, which beyond that, sharing the gospel with them, is of evil and demonic origin. You say, well, that's a little harsh, isn't it? Well, who do you think's trying to keep you from loving, serving, and sharing the gospel with people? It's not Jesus. It's the devil, right, himself. I make a big deal about this because our very salvation, our very inclusion in the church hangs in the balances of these five words that are in Acts chapter 10, verse 28. What does Peter say at the end of that? But God has shown me. Because Peter, in those previous verses, says, I'm a Jewish man, and y'all know, as a Jewish man, I have used every excuse in the book to disassociate with Gentiles. That's what Peter says in verse 28. Peter confesses, I was never gonna ever associate with Gentiles, and I was gonna use the Bible to defend me for doing so. Do you understand that your inclusion in the church hangs in the balances of those five words? But God has shown me. Now here's the thing, we can't ever use the excuse, well God hasn't shown me, because God showed Peter in Acts 10, that applies to us going forward forever and all time. Not just around this issue, but any issue. The Bible is complete. The Bible is God showing us. Again, it it was never an issue of can the Gentiles be saved. It was always should they be saved. And Peter thought, no, they should not. Until God showed him this vision. Until God said, Peter, it's change or be left behind. Now, there are plenty of examples in the Gospels that Gentiles could and wanted to know Jesus. Jesus was irresistible to all people who got a whiff of his grace. But at this point in Acts, what we have in Acts at this point isn't a church trying to open the door to the Gentiles, but a church trying to board the door up. Now, if you don't believe me, read Acts 11 and you'll see them trying to board the door up. If you don't believe me, read Acts 15, and you'll see them trying to board the door up. If you don't believe me, read Galatians 2, and you'll see them trying to board the door up. I'm just trying to bring this out and explain to you why Acts 10 happened like it happened. We think, why would Peter not want to go down there? This is why Peter didn't want to go down there. The church had made a law. We are not going to share the gospel with anybody who is not Jewish. You say, was it that malicious? I mean, you know, they were predominantly Jewish. I mean, was it their fault that the gospel was only reaching Jewish people? I mean, I'm not trying to make a villain out of these people. I'm just teaching you what the book says. But are we reading into this to the point that it seems like they're actively avoiding Gentiles? Well, aside from the fact that Peter literally said earlier, I'm not going, and then confesses that God had to change his mind, I hear you. I'm not trying to make these people seem like they were bad people, right? I'm not trying to do that. 
I, I know this may sound a bit extreme and absolute, but if you read the rest of Acts, you see that there was a tension around this crucial issue. Again, read Ephesians 2, you'll see the tension. But what I think God is trying to show Peter is, it's, it's Peter, it's not that you are actively avoiding them, which they were. But Peter, you're not planning on trying to reach them. And that's just as bad. This is what I think God's trying to say to the church. If we're not actively pursuing and engaging all kinds of people with the gospel, we are in active disobedience to God. You say, well, you know, it's just not that easy, Justin, or it's uncomfortable, it's challenging, cultures are different, and people are different, everything's so different. God does not listen to those excuses. Acts 1.8 is clear. Go unto the whole world. And for us, we don't live in a world that's segmented off, even as they did. We live in a world that's both connected and more diverse than ever. The Great Commission has not been lifted. Has it? Not even during a pandemic is it lifted, which is why we must love and serve all people so we might get the opportunity to share the gospel with them. But here's what happens in Acts 10. Peter wasn't actively looking to share the gospel. Why do you think he went on vacation? He thought his job was done. But God helps pick up the slack in Acts 10. Even when we're standing still, God brings people like Cornelius in our direction. I'm not saying you've got to go out and just look for people. We know enough people that are lost, so I don't think we can use that excuse. But God brings people to us. You ever wonder why God brought that person that's so different than you, that almost that's maybe annoys you, and they're just so ungodly, and they're so different, and they just kind of get on your nerves, but they work beside you, or they live beside you, and they're always interacting with you? You ever wonder why God might have brought them to your life? We don't think about that, do we? We just pray for God to get them out of our way. I'm there with you. Maybe more than you are. Maybe that's why I'm telling that story. But God brings Cornelius to Peter. And Peter, in verse 29, he says, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now, Peter's being a little bit generous with the phrase without objection. Because we know he made plenty of objection back in, verse, back in early on in the story. He just said in verse 28, I wasn't going to come until God showed me I was wrong. Remember the vision three times of the unclean animals, a picture of the unclean people that he thought he didn't have to go to. But once God showed him he was wrong, he said, okay, God, I repent. I accept that you are right, and I'm going to do what you want me to do. He obeyed God fully and finally. So when God showed him he was wrong, without objection, he came. Now, Peter, he's kind of famous or maybe infamous for telling God no, isn't he? Remember when Jesus preached that sermon about how he's going to die on the cross and he's going to give up his life and, and, and it's going to cost us our own lives to follow him? Peter rebuked Jesus. The story goes that Peter got up in Jesus' face and said, Jesus, we don't really like this sermon. He, he, and he, in the Bible, it uses the word rebuke that Jesus rebuked demons with. Peter rebukes Jesus with that same rebuke. He had watched Jesus rebuke demons, and he goes up to Jesus and rebukes him for preaching the gospel. It's in Mark 8. Go read it. Or in Matthew 16, there's another version of it. Peter says, Jesus, I rebuke you. And Jesus says, who do you think you are? He calls him Satan. Remember the other time when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, I will never deny you, Lord. I'll die for you. But 
again, he stood up and said, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. And then, of course, when he was accused of being with Jesus, he denied him three times. Peter made a kind of a name for himself as saying, not so, Lord. But in this instance, he said, yes, Lord, when God showed him he was wrong. Peter asked Cornelius, why did you sin for me? In verse 30, Cornelius says, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, call Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent you immediately and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. So Cornelius says, hey, I had this vision. An angel told me to call for you. So I called for you and now we're here. Can we get to the point? But I want to talk about this. If God sent an angel to Cornelius, why couldn't this angel have preached the gospel to him? I don't think that it's insignificant that God did not reveal the gospel through this angel, but God wanted Cornelius to meet Peter, and he wanted the gospel to come through their conversation. There's two ways, there's two reasons that I believe God chose to do it this way for both church and for both, for church and for kingdom. God wanted Cornelius as a part of the church. God did not make a habit of revealing things to individuals in the New Testament as he might have in the old. We see God using the church to bring people in. Remember, he, re- he came to Saul in a vision. He came to Cornelius in a vision. He came to the Macedonian man later on in a vision. But he always brought them to the church. He never just revealed to them through an angel on their own. He always wanted to bring them into the church. Why is that important? God uses his church to preach the gospel. And when we get saved, we're made members of the church. So God didn't just send an angel to reveal to Cornelius. God wanted Cornelius to meet Peter because God wanted Cornelius to know there's a place for you in the body of Christ. And that's important. Because is God able to reveal to everybody that's lost, their loss? Is God able to do that? Yes, he is. But what has God commanded? That the church might go and reach those who are lost. Because Christians are meant to be and have no identity apart from the church. So when the church deflects our need to go to people down the road, across town, across the ocean, we are in disobedience to God's plan. Can God reveal himself through supernatural means? Yes, but he wants people to be a part of his church. He expects the church to meet those people who are searching just the same. He calls us to search for those people who aren't even looking. Second reason there is for the kingdom of God. The big picture here continues to be important. God wanted to make a statement of reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. So yes, this is about the church, but it's also about the kingdom of God. I hope that makes sense. The kingdom of God is a multinational, multicultural establishment. God wanted to see this Gentile meet this Jew and prove that he was overcoming this racial barrier. God desires to see the bridges between divided worlds be overcome. He is glorified when 
we are reconciled to each other. So these details matter. These details are so important. Acts is all about God building up his church and establishing his kingdom. And notice how it works. From individuals to the church, he saves people and puts them in a body. He brings people from all nations and shows them their place in a harmonious, multi-ethnical, multinational, multicultural kingdom of God where every one of us have a place regardless of where we come from. Acts 10 is so crucial in seeing how God's grand and global plan was finally coming together. These next few verses are so foundational in establishing the church's identity and outlining its mission going forward. Peter is going to start off by making a proclamation that is overflowing with grace before he then moves on to summarize the life of Jesus. And I think this proclamation itself was enough to cause his audience to bow and say, we will do and commit to whatever your God has for us if this statement is true. In closing, look at verse 34, 35. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. This is not a new concept. This is what God showed us in the Old Testament where Samuel is told by God that God does not look on the outward appearance. Next verse, next slide, please. God does not look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. But understand the ramification of this world, of this in a world that is divided by race and culture, Peter says, God is for everyone. God is for everyone. We talked about this in our discussion at the end of Jeremiah a few weeks ago as God began talking favorable about nations that seem to be against Israel. God does not take sides. God takes over. And everything that goes on in our world is God moving things in place to grow his church and build his kingdom. This is why, as a pastor, I may come across as apolitical or non-political or anti-political sometimes. Not because I am, necessarily, but because for the kingdom of God to be established, it's going to require some things to go and some things to come, some nations to rise and some nations to fall. I challenge my own ideas and interests a lot, but I have to go with God. And here's where I always come down, and here's where we come down tonight. We must preach the simple, gracious gospel of Jesus because God wants to save the people who are man-made ideologies. Excuse us from loving, keep us from, and drive away from us. This is why it's so crucial we preach the simple, gracious gospel of Jesus because our man-made religions and politics and everything else will keep people away and drive people away and excuse us from ever loving and serving those people. Peter doesn't begin talking about all the things that might would keep them apart. He doesn't entertain his own anxieties or lean into his own flesh to build up the impossibility of these people ever coming to Jesus. In the next few verses you can read, he summarizes what God has done through Jesus. And this is what he basically says. Jesus is the great unifier. Jesus is the one that brought tax collector and Pharisee together. He brought priest and prostitute together. He brought rebel and lawyer together. The ones that walked away from Jesus were the self-righteous that were angry that he did not push their agenda. Those that stayed became like Jesus. They were the ones that were exposed to his grace. If you read the gospels, that's the story 
on display. Down in verse 44 through 48, it says the Holy Spirit falls on these and they begin to praise the Lord just like the Jews had prior to. It's sort of a mini Pentecost. And in verse 47, Peter asked the question that I think he himself never imagined him asking. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit? Underline this, just as we have. Peter was speechless. He never thought this would happen. He literally is going to go to the Jerusalem church in the next chapter and say to them, I did not think this was going to happen. Let me tell you what happened. So here's where we have to come, on, come out tonight. Can we withhold a place from the people that God has met with his grace? Can we do this? Of course we can. What this story tells us more than anything is that the gospel can still do and can, can, what the gospel can still yet do if we would just stick to it and keep sharing it. Grace can bring people together what sin, religion, and this world have driven apart, grace can bring together. Sin, religion, and this world fight to keep us apart. But Jesus died so that we might come together, so that we might unite in his church and his kingdom. So the question is, are we sticking to this mission? Are we following this model? Are we preaching the irresistible grace of Jesus Christ? Now, there's more to come about what the grace of God can do. This is about who the, grace can, who the grace of God can reach. And I know we have questions. We have to leave the questions for God and his grace to handle. But may there be zero question regarding our obedience to God's call, which is to preach the gospel, love and serve everyone. Oh, that we would. Oh, how different our lives might be, how much more diverse our churches might be. So I've got to ask you this, church. What are you going to do with this? I hope you'll read Peter's words and search your own heart. And as God's grace has made a place for you, I hope you'll make a place for others. Intentionally be on mission, affectionately be in relationship with those that sin, religion, in this world might tell you to avoid Cross that bridge, love that person, serve that person, share Jesus with that person. You never know what God might can do. And he might just be waiting on me and you to be obedient for him to do it. Church, I take very serious these scriptures that we've been studying and I take very serious my, my responsibility to preach this, these scriptures. I hope that we all take very serious our responsibility to go live out these scriptures. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this word. It is challenging. Lord, we may not avoid people because of race or culture, but we avoid people, that's for sure. In this day and age, in the ancient world, it was Jew and Gentile. It could be all sorts of things in our world. But God, help us to see what the gospel can do. Help us to see what the grace of God can do. Help us to see that Jesus is not partial. That Jesus is building a church and he is establishing a kingdom that is for all people. God, I know a lot of us, it's not that we are avoiding the mission. It's just that we don't think about it. 
And conversations like this make us uncomfortable and make us feel like we're being targeted or picked on. But God, help us not to avoid this conversation. Help us not to avoid this reality that we have been called to go to our worlds and share the gospel. We have been called to go to people and talk to people and love people that we might have reasons to avoid. God, I know Peter was an apostle and it was his full-time job. But if we're being true to our faith, our full-time and our primary and our priority every day is to make disciples. So God, help us not to miss that. Help us not to avoid that. God, help us to put this on the top of our list and love and serve the most unlikely and unexpected of persons. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.